Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Archaeo News Podcast, episode number 269. Before we get into today's podcast, I would love to remind you that there are, of course, a lot of stories on the website that we aren't covering in today's podcast, and you can see all of these at news.stonepages.com. And as always, I would love to thank Diego and his amazing team of editors who are helping us gather these different stories for today's podcast. So without further ado, let's have a look at just some of the headlines. Starting off, we'll be looking at the age of ancient humans, as there have been some discrepancies around the island of Java. Next, non-destructive methods of looking at manhood footprints and possibly human footprints in the future. Third, there is a story about a piece of Neolithic gum found in Denmark, which has some preserved DNA in it, and it's a very interesting story. As our fourth story rolls around, we'll have some crowdsourcing specifically about watching ancient monuments and noticing about destruction, whether through vandalism or through climatic changes. Our fifth story is very dark about children being buried with older children's skulls as helmets. Then to Tibet, we'll have two stories, one about Denisovan molars and the way it reflects Asian populations nowadays, as opposed to the uh, teeth setup, and then about Neolithic crops in the same area. And finally, we have an Israeli wall that was built to hold out the sea some 7,000 years ago. However, it did sadly fail. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for the first story of today's podcast. Ancient humans have survived longer than previously thought, or at least in Java, they did. As all of our listeners are probably aware, Homo erectus evolved some 2 million years ago and is the first known human species to walk fully upright. Now, new dating evidence shows it survived until just over 100,000 years ago on the Indonesian island of Java, long after it had vanished elsewhere. This is based on the find of 12 Homo erectus skull caps and two lower leg bones, which were found in a bone bed 20 meters above the Solo River during the 1930s. Researchers have since attempted to date these fossils, but this is quite difficult because the surrounding geology is complex and the details of the original excavations have become confused or lost. In the 1990s, one team came up with a very unexpected young age of between 53,000 and 27,000 years ago. Now, a new research team led by Professor Russell Chiochen of the University of Iowa opening up a new excavation of an untouched reserve area on the terraces beside the Solar River and providing what they describe as a definitive age for the bone bed between 117,000 and 108,000 years ago, which is the most recent known record of Homo erectus anywhere in the world. Homo erectus does appear on some of the other islands around Southeast Asia, but it does appear it evolves into smaller forms, such as Homo florensiensis, also known as the hobbit on Flores, and Homo lusonensis on the Philippines. The fossils represent a period when open woodlands were transforming into rainforests, and no Homo erectus are found after this time, and after that there is a gap with no human activity at all until the Homo sapiens arrive on Java some 39,000 years ago. From Homo erectus, we go directly to Ice Age mammoths and prehistoric humans. One of the largest collections of vertebrae animal tracks from the Ice Age can be found on a preserved dried lake bed called the Alcali Flat at White Sands National Monument in south-central New Mexico, U.S., which is about 1,300 kilometers east of Los Angeles. Locally, these tracks are referred to as ghost tracks, seeing as they're extremely difficult to see but researchers have been able to find them using ground-penetrating radar at the site and have now not only been able to discover the tracks made by big animals, such as mammoths and giant ground sloths, but also those of the humans that hunted them. 
Examining these radar images reveals that there's something resembling hooks below the base of the man's footprints, which is possibly from the compression of the sediment at the time the tracks were made, which then could provide crucial information about the way these animals walked. The pressure data from the man's footprints closely resemble those of modern elephants, which not a big surprise in my opinion, but it's good to know regardless. Scientists now believe that the radar can be used to map human footprints at other sites and as well as image the pressure patterns beneath the dinosaur tracks. The radar imaging also allows for the study of how these ancient creatures walked without disturbing the fossil footprints and has a huge advantage for conservation. A small side note to this whole discussion, it is amazing to see when these new technologies are applied because the non-destructive properties of them allows a lot more information to work with as far as studying sites. One of the bigger advantages, for example, for Carbon-14 has been the slow elimination of large sampling needed. I believe the last time I saw something for Carbon-14, all you needed was about 0.1 grams of carbon-based material for it to be Carbon-14 dated, which is a lot less than it used to be. Back when I was studying, they would tell us that normally you would have to have around a whole human bone or something like that to even attempt a carbon-14 study because of the impractical uses of the method at the time. Now, this next story we're about to cover, specifically about the Neolithic chewing gum found in Denmark, is very near and dear to me, not only because of the fact that it was found in Denmark, but because of the fact that I know the guy who found it personally. And a big congrats to him. Uh... You really need some good eyes to be able to find something like that on such a big excavation. Now, at the dawn of the Neolithic era, a young woman discarded a lump of ancient chewing gum made from birch tar into a lagoon near the coast of southern Denmark. Even then, people were throwing their gum away in inappropriate places. Now, nearly 6,000 years later, the archaeologists who were excavating the site spotted the gum amid pieces of wood and wild animal bone and from it have reassembled her complete DNA and so painted the broad strokes of her portrait. The preserved DNA strands in the gum point to a hunter-gatherer from continental Europe who would have had dark skin, dark hair, and blue eyes. She would have lived near the lagoon that would have been protected from the open sea by shifting sand barriers around 5,600 years ago, according to the carbon dating of the birch tar. Along with her DNA, the researchers found genetic material from duck and hazelnuts, presumed a remnant of an recent meal and at least 40 types of microbes. Henne Schroeder, who is a molecular anthropologist at the University of Copenhagen, said, This is the first time anyone has got a full Asian genome from anything other than bone or teeth. The preservation of the gum is quite extraordinary. We didn't expect to find the whole genome. Now, the piece of gum itself is about 2 centimeters long and was discovered during the excavations at Sultham on Lodland Island before the construction of the Feyman tunnel which is going to connect Denmark and Germany. This is a huge site by the way. Uh, they've got a lot of stuff about it online if you search for the name. The Stone Age site in question was more than a fishing ground. It also had piles of bones from cattle, deer, ox, wildcats, dogs, and otters all deposited there near the remnants of wooden fish traps over hundreds of generations. T. Jensen, who is a researcher at the University of Copenhagen and the first author on the study, says... This place was of special significance. These people didn't live at the site, but probably on dry land a couple of hundred meters away. Now, due to the fact that lumps of tar found at archaeological sites often contain juvenile tooth marks, and given that it contains antiseptic substances, it is believed that these may actually have served as an old form of toothbrush. Again, congrats to my friend who found it. 
really, really awesome that you did. And anybody who actually wants to see a picture of her, uh, if you don't want to follow the link to The Guardian, uh, London Fettes, the museum, who are responsible for the excavation in Denmark, have also posted a whole picture of her, as well as a picture of the chewing gum in question. I'm going to send that to Diego so he can kind of link that with the article when this podcast goes out. And now for the halfway point of the podcast, the public are helping document damage to historic Scottish sites. Currently in Scotland, members of the public are helping to document the effects of weather and vandalism at some of Scotland's most ancient monuments. While they're uploading images of the ancient sites, experts are using these pictures to spot changes in the state of each of the sites. Historic Environment Scotland and the Institute of Sustainable Heritage at University College London are now working with Monument Monitor, which is a two-year project involving 20 sites. One of the monitored sites is the 4,000-year-old Clava Cairns de Iraness, and this is one of Scotland's ancient burial sites and is believed to have inspired Diana Gabaldon's Outlander stories. The Cairns themselves were built as houses for the dead, and the cemetery was used as a sacred place for 1,000 years. The site has suffered damages once in 2017 when stones were dislodged and graffiti were written on a rock. And there has also been a lot of interference at the site in 17 years, one in which a Belgian tourist took a stone from the Cairns as a souvenir. It was later returned to the Highlands after complaining it had cursed its family. The surprise staff at Inverness Tourist Centre received the parcel containing the stone and a letter which urged them to put it back where it came from in Clava Cairns. The man supposedly said that since taking the stone, his daughter had broken her leg, his wife had become very ill, and he had lost his job and broken his arm. A tourist official returned the cursed stone to Clava Cairns. In general, I like this story, and I like when projects like this are started, because archaeology, we do not have a lot of time. In Denmark recently, for four or five years in a row, we've had 2% cut on all museums and public educations. And when they cut us down, we also lose the ability to look at sites like this. So if you have the ability, if you're out looking on site and you see something that seems odd or there's graffiti, take a picture and send it to your local heritage museum, no matter which country they're in. I'm sure they'd love to help because as much as we would love to do it, we just don't have a lot of time to do it, sadly. For this next story, we've got a topic that is slightly darker than normal. Um, So if you have kids with you, I might suggest putting them away. Archaeologists have recently excavated a pair of 2,100-year-old funerary mounds on the coast of central Ecuador and revealed the skeletons of two infants with their heads encased in tight-fitting helmets made from the skulls of older children. This is the only known evidence of juvenile skulls as mortuary headgear. One of the children was around 18 months old at the time, and the other was around uh, between 6 to 9 months old. It is known that the members of the Guangala culture interred the infants at a ritual complex around 100 BCE. Of the two infants, the older infant's helmet was originally from a child aged 4 to 12 years old, with um, researchers finding a small shell and finger bone between the two skulls. The second infant's helmet was made from the skull of a child between 2 and 12 years old, though no causes of death are known at this time. The excavations that revealed the two children were conducted between 2014 and 2016 and unearthed nine other individuals, many of whom were accompanied by small objects, including figurines and shells. Other infants at the site were buried with figurines placed near their heads. Now, um, in Southern American culture, the human head was often viewed as a powerful symbol. 
Archaeologists also believe that the older children's skulls likely still had flesh when they were fitted over the infant's head. They say that juvenile skulls often do not hold together as um, they are assembled just by bare bone. Using DNA and isotope analysis, we may be able to clarify whether the infants and children were related. Ash from the site suggests a nearby active volcano, which would likely have interfered with agriculture in the area, potentially subjecting the children to malnourishment or starvation. This would explain why all four sets of bones show signs of anemia. And now for our next story, where we will be comparing the teeth of the Denisovans to the modern Asians. Until recently, the fossil record of the Denisovans consisted only of two teeth and a small finger bone, all from one cave in Siberia. So, in mid-2019, the discovery of a Denisovan jawbone in Tibet was the first found outside of its cave. The jaw's second lower molar had three roots, which is a characteristic common of the first molar in contemporary Asian populations. It is present in up to 40% of individuals, compared to less than 3.5% in non-Asian populations. However, even in this case, it is only 1.9% of second molars in groups with the highest frequency of this trait. A detailed study of the Denisovan molar from Tibet also revealed that while they did have three roots in their configuration, it is different than in modern human populations. This is not only in regards to its size and shape, but also its position. So the genetic variation that caused three roots in Tibet is probably different to what caused the molar to have three roots in modern populations. Keeping the focus on Tibet, let's take a look at Neolithic crops discovered in the area. Archaeologists have discovered mixed crops that are believed to have been grown during the Neolithic age in Tibet. The scientific team found the crops at the looting site in the southeastern part of Tibet, and it came to light in November 2018 when multiple archaeological agencies conducted surveys at the crossing points of the Nyangchu River and the Yalung Sangpo River. Really hope I pronounced those right. The dating of the site dates back to between 1000 and 2000 BCE, and archaeologists have said they found two stone walls, a drain, as well as a great deal of stoneware. He Wei of the Regional Cultural Relics Research Institute said, This is the second Neolithic site with specific dates in Nyongchung Prefecture, and the mixed crops are similar to what we found in another prehistoric site in Tibet. The findings not only provide important research materials for archaeology, but also give clues about prehistoric lifestyles and the spread of crops. And for the final story of today's podcast, we have a story about prehistoric humans building a wall to keep out the sea. However, it failed. Spectacularly. In what feels also very much like a modern story, however, this one takes place about 7,000 years ago, with the wall being discovered off the Israeli coast, and it is the oldest known defense against rising sea levels. The site is known as Tel Hirtz and is located off the Carmel coast of Israel, once ho- hosting a vibrant Neolithic community. The Mediterranean settlement thrived for hundreds of years as his villagers hunted the gazelle and deer, farmed cows and pigs, fished for tilapia, raised their dogs, and manufactured copious amounts of olive oil. Though with each passing generation, the villagers noticed something rather frightening, namely the waters of the Mediterranean were getting higher and higher. The studies show that the rising sea levels would have been noticeable across a person's lifespan, as they rose at an alarming rate of 4 to 7 millimeters each year, or around 70 centimeters every 100 years. Sadly, the people were reluctant to leave their settlement, and, uh, and sadly, the people were reluctant to leave the settlement and instead opted to protect against the increasing powerful waves and the destructive effects of the erosion. 
So the villagers of Telchietz decided to take matters into their own hands and constructed a 100-meter-long seawall that ran parallel to the shore. The new research suggests that this wall was nothing too fancy, having been built by piling large boulders atop of each other. The seawall's length and the use of the big boulders sourced from outside the community's careful arrangement on the shore reflect the extensive effort invested by the Neolithic villagers in its conception, organization, and construction, according to the authors of the study. While the seawall may have helped for a while, it ultimately failed, and the village, after about 500 years of continuous occupancy, had to be abandoned. This study involves scientists from the University of Haifa, Flinders University in Australia, the Israeli Antiquity Authorities, and the Hebrew University. Today, the seawall is submerged under about 3 meters of water, and being constructed about 7,000 years ago, it is now the oldest known coastal defense system in the archaeological record. It is an exceptional find as infrastructure improvements such as these didn't start to appear in the region until the Bronze and Iron Ages. Importantly, the new research, led by archaeologist Ehud Garali from the University of Haifa, shows that humanity's battle against the rising sea level dates back for thousands of years. And with that story, we have reached the end of today's podcast. As I mentioned at the top of the show, feel free to go to news.stonepages.com for all of the story in today's podcast, as well as any that we may have missed, and there are quite a few, and many of them are very interesting. If you're not content with just the news uh, site on the stonepages.com website, we also do have a Facebook group that you can join, and uh, we will probably accept you into the group. Apart from that, feel free to leave a review, as many stars as you do wish. Uh, all feedback is, of course, appreciated. You can also send me an email at philip at stonepages.com. That is P-H-I-L-I-P at stonepages.com. But without further ado, I would like to say thank you for listening, and I will see you guys next time.